If you brought a copy of Scripture with you this morning, you can find Genesis chapter 35. Genesis chapter 35, as I weigh in here, okay? Okay. Man, I hate these things. <laughs> I won't tell you who said amen. Um, as a wrestler, that thing there was the bane of my existence for about four years. It was a weekly reminder of all the sacrifice, the denial, the pride of the sport, everything that went in to wrestling, all the blood, the sweat, the tears, the self-denial, just to make weight, much less win the match. And that actually became a metaphor after I became a Christian of the Christian life itself for me. Because the reality was that without discipline, I wasn't going to make weight. And the Christian life, and this is, we're, we're bringing this series to a conclusion. I want to give you a charge to that end today. The Christian life, once you have entered into it, and I'm not, not assuming all of you have, and contrary to what some people would have you think, does involve sacrifice. That's why the Bible says, present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. The Christian life does involve denial. Jesus said, anyone who comes after me and doesn't deny himself can't be my disciple, right? It does involve pride. By the way, not pride in your own cross, where Jesus said, take up your own cross and follow me. Not pride in your own cross, but the cross we just sang about, the cross of Christ, where Paul said, God forbid that I should be proud except in the cross of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? And so it also involves anticipating certain realities that just happen in life, whether, you know, we, we just think, Many of us think if we, just, if we get all of our ducks in a row, everything's going to go just peachy keen. Anybody who lives more than a year knows better than that, right? Living by the grace of God does not exempt us from the trials and the heartaches and losses that come with life. Grace, in fact, Paul told Titus, teaches us to say no to certain things, right? As well as saying yes to other things. That's what grace does. These last chapters in the, life, in the life of Jacob, the wrestler, the one who wrestled with God and prevailed, these last chapters of him and his family have some similarities to you and me and our family and its growth and the way kids change. I mean, there's a lot of moving around. Can you relate to that? There's kids growing up and moving out. Can you relate to that? There's Kids making poor decisions, can you relate to that? And one of them, Dinah, in the chapter before, makes a colossally bad decision, and she ends up going out with the women of the land, and she ends up with an unbeliever who abuses her, causing a stench in the nostrils of her brothers, and the whole. by the end of the story, they're... The family reputation is at stake. There are stench in the nostrils of the people in the land, and there's the, there's the threat of war hanging over them. All kinds of stuff. And in the end, realities occur. In this 
what we're going to be looking at today, you're going to see two deaths. One is a timely death, a natural death, one we expect in everyone. A 180-year-old dies. I, I expect 180-year-olds to die. And then a mother giving birth dies. Unnatural, untimely death. That's reality. We don't get to control our realities. Can you agree with that? We don't get to. I mean, just the other day, my wife and I were at a funeral. Just the other day, up in Ames. 30-year-old man who grew up with one of our sons. And uh, husband, father of three kids, brain, brain aneurysm, died just like that. And he was gone. We don't get to control those things. I'm reminded of what Solomon said when he said, it's, that's the reason why it's, you're better to be in the house of mourning than the house of feasting. You better be, you're better off being at a funeral than a party because this is the end of all men and the living, Lord willing, will take it to heart. That's the idea. That's why you go to funerals. So you'll take to heart the brevity of life, right? That we all have to see and experience. The final installment, this final installment of the faith of our fathers is a charge to all of us to carry on in that faith with, throughout all the vicissitudes, all of the changes, all the ups and downs that life has to throw at you. So how do we carry on the faith of our fathers? How do we do that from this story here? Well, the first thing I want to point out is establish an altar, which is what some of you still need to do. Establish an altar. Chapter 35 and verse 1, God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there, and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. And so he does. Verse 7 tells us exactly that. It says, And, uh, and there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. So when was then? That is, when did Jacob build an altar? Well, the answer is what we already talked about. After the episode in the, in the chapter, we're just sort of gliding over, chapter 34. The only daughter of Jacob goes out and visits the daughters of the land. And paths lead to places, right? And it's a poor decision. She ends up... Uh, in a relationship, actually, it's, a, it's, it's an abusive relationship. A forced sexual situation occurs, and suddenly everybody is up, uh, is up in arms. She's been violated, and her assailant is about to be violated. Her brothers get involved in this. They're ticked off. They're furious, and as a result, they scheme. They're a little bit like their dad, so they meet with the the assailant who says, hey, let me have, I'd like, to, I'd like to have Dinah as my wife. And they said, you know, we can make this happen. Our people marry your people, your people marry our people. But first of all, all your guys got to get circumcised. Now, there's a great idea. And they go along with it. And while they're hurting as a result of the circumcisions, the sons of Jacob, and namely Simeon and Levi, go in and they decimate the place. They kill every single man, take all the women, Take all the children, take all the stuff. That's when God talks to Jacob and tells him. At this, so, so that's when God speaks with Jacob. And keep in mind now, in fact, chapter, the, chapter uh, 34, verse 30, 
Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land. There's the threat of death, there's the threat of war, and there is this, we have a horrible reputation. In the light of all that, what does God tell Jacob to do? Does he tell him, build a city? Does he say, build alliances? Does he say, build an army? Does he say, build a wall? You had to get that one in there. No, he says, build an altar. Build an altar. And by doing so, go back to the place where you met me the first time. Go back to Bethel and build an altar. When I first read this, I, I remembered reading about at the outbreak of World War II when Japan attacked the United States, bombed Pearl Harbor. At 3.30 a.m., the phone rang Manila time in the Philippines and General Douglas MacArthur answered the phone to find out that Japan had attacked Pearl Harbor. The Philippines were now in a threat. He would finally, he would soon have to leave. But what was fascinating about the story was when he heard about this, the first thing he did was not to call for his personal assistant. He didn't call for the hotline to talk to President Roosevelt. The first thing he did was he reached for his Bible so that he could meet with God. And that's what God would have you and me do as well. No matter what's happening in your life, you establish this altar, this time with God. And this is the ultimate place, this is the ultimate altar right here, the word of God. This is the place where we meet God, infallibly so. Of all of the descriptions of the Bible in the Bible, of the Bible, like it's inspired by God and such, my favorite one is in Acts 20, verse 32, where Paul says to the Ephesian elders as he's leaving, he says, I commend you now to God and to the word of his, you know, anybody know the next word? Grace. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to give to sanctify you, that is, set you apart and give you an inheritance amongst the saints. Have you ever read that? The Bible is a veritable vehicle of grace. It's God's way of giving you grace. Why wouldn't you choose to meet with God in his word at every given time in your life? This is where we meet with God. Now he tells him, notice what you notice in verse 1, God says, arise, go up to Bethel. The implication is he's not there. Bethel is where he first met with God, where he saw the ladder, the angels up and down. Remember that? It's, this is 30 years later. Jacob is back in the land. Now listen carefully what I'm telling you here. He's back in the land. He's done serving Laban. He's already wrestled with God. He's reconciled with Esau, he's back in the land. In fact, he's been in the right area for a decade, for 10 years. But at the end of chapter 33, it says he moved into Shechem, not Bethel, about 30 miles from Bethel. God tells him to get back to Bethel. You see, Jacob was in the right area, but he was in the wrong place. Is that possible? Is it possible that you could be, well, I mean, you're here. This is the right place to be, right? But you're in the wrong place with God? Is that possible for some of you right now? 
And if you are, if you're out of place, if you're in the wrong place, right area, wrong place, then here's what you need to do. Do what God told Jacob. Get back to Bethel. Get back to where it all began. If you are a true child of God, go back to where it all began. Where is your Bethel? Where is your Bethel? Can you go back there in your mind's eye? Can you go back there in your heart's mind? I, can you go back there? Can you, can you see it? Can you feel it? Can you picture it? Where you met with God, where you worshiped him for the first time, where you trusted Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, where you offer yourself to God as a vessel for his glory. Can you remember that? And if you're out of place with God right now, if you're in the right area but the wrong place, then remember the advice we gave to you. Actually, Jesus gave us to the Ephesians. Remember from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works. Repeat. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. Isn't that wonderful, by the way? Remember, repent, repeat. And build and establish an altar with God. If you're going to carry on in the faith of our fathers. And secondly, bury your idols. Verse 2, so Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you. And purify yourselves and change your garments. Remember, he's talking to his sons. They just slaughtered an entire city. I'm wondering if there was blood on their clothing. Then let us rise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I've gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods they had and the rings in their ears. Jacob hid them under the, or buried them under the Tirbeth tree that was near Shechem. By the way, archaeology has recovered um, the, the rings that were in the ears. These were idols, little idols. Idols weren't always big, giant totem pole things. They were little handheld things. In this case, it was an ear, they were earrings. Archaeology has uncovered uh, crescent-shaped earrings that were dedicated to the moon god of that time. These people having sacked, the sons of Jacob having sacked the city, killed the men, taken the wives, the kids, the stuff, had also grabbed all the idols and they were wearing them. He says, put them away. Change your clothing, all of that. This is, this is big stuff here. I mean, by the way, have you ever, have you ever made a move or in the making of a move uh, ask yourself, where do we get all this junk that we acquired? You ever been there? Sometimes you have boxes that you didn't open with the last move. You still haven't opened them? I mean, it's, it's so easy for us to just accumulate junk. And some of that junk that you're accumulating in your own life is nothing less than an idol. It's an impediment to your walk with God. Some of you have made your kids your idol, your spouse your idol, some alcohol or substance your idol, pornography your idol, materialism your idol. God says, bury it, get rid of it, get rid of the idols. And by the way, please notice he says, again, he says, change your clothes. I've already mentioned, I think they probably still had blood on their clothing, but th- 
But the scene here is the very scene that the Apostle Paul would have had in mind when he said to the Ephesians who had trusted Christ, he said, he said put off the old man, right? And put on the new man which is created in righteousness. This is a Greek clothing terminology is what Paul was using. And I think Paul was thinking of this scene. Put off, put on. It's camp season, I remember preaching in a camp a few years back, and outside they, they were having sewage issues. So they had a couple of their employees, a couple of teenagers, were actually down in the muck and muddle of the sewage system trying to fix it so we could all flush our toilets. And they came, it was lunchtime, and the two guys that were in the pit literally walked through the lunch hall with their filthy clothing on. I saw them, they walked right by me. I lost my appetite immediately. God says, if you, have, if you have placed your faith in me, if you placed your faith in Jesus, it's time to change your clothes. Now, I want to make something really clear. God doesn't want you to clean up your act in order to come to him. He wants you to come to him so you can clean up your act. That's where the power comes from. When you place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then God gives you grace. Grace, by definition, is power to do what you can't do on your own, to rid yourselves, to change your clothes, to walk with Jesus. It's not something you can do on your own, but it, it, there is a responsibility for you to do that. All of us are responsible to that. And, and notice, and the results, here's the, here's the results, verse five. And as they journeyed, terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. There is a divine protection. When we bury, when we get rid of, when we jettison our idols, God, he, he puts a divine protection around us. And you should be thinking of, uh, of the New Testament uh, corollary to this would be Acts chapter five. Remember the church in its infancy, just getting going. God's protecting his church. It's growing like crazy. And there are two individuals who show up whose idol is materialism, just like some of you. You love your stuff. Ananias and Sapphira, they sell their property. And they come to Peter and they say, well, here's all the money. And they kept back some of it, which the Greek word is embezzle. They embezzled. Why? Because they love their stuff. And God, protecting his church, dropped both of them dead on the spot. Now, he doesn't do that today, but he he often does that at the beginning of different epics in the scripture. He did it then at the beginning of the church age. Bottom line is, when we bury our idols, God protects us. I think that's true. Somebody asked me the other day, I had a gal in our church that came from one of these wonky churches in the area, and, uh, well, she came about a year ago, so they've settled in, they've become members, and she said to me, she said, I got to thinking why I love Sailorville so much. She said, because when I'm here, I feel protected. Now, that was an interesting statement, very encouraging. And it is true, it is the divine purpose of the church to protect the flock of God by feeding them the word of God, amen? But you and I, as individuals, have to put away our own idols. That falls on us. That falls on you. In our, in our endeavor to carry on the faith of our fathers. Thirdly, in doing that, carrying on the faith of our fathers... Remember, watch this, whose you are. Look at verse 10. God's talking to Jacob. He says, 
Your name is Jacob, like he needed to be reminded. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel is to be your name, so he called his name Israel. Now, this is really fascinating to me, the way God interacted with Jacob here. There is a sense in which Jacob, having had his name now changed to Israel, was to always be reminded of who he used to be. By the way, the Apostle Paul did this repeatedly in the New Testament. The very first testimony I ever gave, ever, publicly, my first pastor overheard me giving my testimony to some other guys after we'd come back on calling, just a couple weeks after I'd become a Christian. He heard me give my testimony. He said, Pat Nimmers, I want you to share your testimony in church this Sunday, and don't spare a detail. I didn't really understand it at the time, but what he was trying to do was set up the contrast, what happens when the grace of God invades somebody's life. I think God wanted Jacob to remember who he was. But let me tell you something. He doesn't belabor the fact that I've changed your name to Israel. Remember, Jacob is, means one, a deceiver. Israel means one who fights for God, with God. Remember, he'd fought with God. He'd wrestled with God and prevailed. He's now on God's side. And God could have gone on and on about the name Israel, but he doesn't do that. As soon as he tells Jacob that his name now is Israel, in the very next verse, the 11th verse, he says, I am El Shaddai. I am God Almighty. Now think about this for a moment. This is a lot like when Moses met with God at the burning bush. God says, I'm going to send you down to Egypt. You're going to deliver my people. Moses says, yeah, right. Do you know who I am? Who am I? Who am I to do this? Remember that? And it's not like God says, yeah, good question. Who are you? He doesn't say that. Instead, he more famously says, who are you? It's who am I? I am ascending you. Remember that? It's as if God was saying, Moses, it's not who you are. It's whose you are. And I want you to let that sink in. God's saying the same thing to Jacob. It's not who you are. It's whose you are that makes all the difference in the world. It makes all the difference in the world. My my kids would leave the home to go to school as they were growing up, and we would constantly say, remember whose you are. That didn't always work. But we did tell them that repeatedly. And I would say that along with that, remember your purposes for your existence. Why God created you the way he created you. Have you ever asked yourself that question? Why did God make me like this? With my abilities and my inabilities. Some of you have great gifts. Some of you have lesser gifts. Some of you have great physical uh, constitutions. Some of you not so good. Remember what God said to Moses? Who makes the dumb? Who makes the blind? I'm the one who makes them. Listen, it doesn't matter how much great ability you have or inability you have. It's whose you are. Lock into that. And you'll carry on in the faith of our fathers. God made you just the way you are. You don't have to be a Baptist to say amen to that. Thank you. 
Seriously. A couple weeks ago, I did a funeral. And a godly gentleman in our church who struggled with throat cancer came up to me after I preached. He pulled me close to himself and he said, I wish I could speak like you. And I said to him, I wish I could serve like you. You're a a man of God. You've served the Lord Jesus for many years. Be thankful for the way he created you and keep doing it. And that's what God would have us to know as we absorb the fact that it's not who you are, but, say it, whose you are. And when you get it, listen, Christ follower, God has equipped you with certain abilities, and yes, inabilities, but take whatever it is, offer it back to God, give him the glory, and serve him. That's your job. And you do like Jacob, verse 14, he takes wine and he takes oil and he sets up a pillar and he dedicates himself or maybe rededicates himself to the Lord. One more thing, one more thing in our endeavor to carry on the faith of our fathers. Anticipate life's realities. You gotta do that. Verse 16, then they journeyed from Bethel When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, she was dying, she called his name Benoni, which means son of my sorrow. But look at the rest of it. Jacob, knowing the power of a name, right? Knowing the power of a name, said, ah, no. Changed his name to Benjamin, son of my right hand. Changed his name. And then what happens? The uncontrollable reality of life, that's what happens. Rachel dies. She dies. The love of Jacob's life is gone. C.S. Lewis said, never let your happiness depend on something you may lose. And the rest of the passage says they bury her. There's an irony in the death of Rachel, and some of you may have caught it. Remember years earlier, in her passion for kids, she was manipulating everything to have kids. Remember the mandrakes? Remember that? Give me children or I what? Or I die. See the irony? In the end, she got both. A child, and she died. The reality is, We don't get to choose our realities. True? Jacob would have more losses to come. We all do. That's that's reality. But through all his joys and sorrows, he was finally where he belonged. Are you? Are you? He finally 
knows who he belonged to. Do you? And finally, he's growing. Are you? Look at the last verse in the chapter. By and by, old Isaac, Jacob's dad, 180 years old, dies. There's a timely death. You have an untimely death, and now a timely death. Those are the realities of life, right? He dies. He's gathered to his people. And look who showed up at the funeral. Jacob and Esau come back together again. I've seen it happen over and over again. Death just does that. It just pulls us together. A couple of weeks ago, the church sprung a surprise on my wife and I. We were shocked. We were overwhelmed. We were overjoyed. We were full of tears and happiness and humbled. And I don't know what other, I mean, we, we're still beside ourselves over the whole thing. It was wonderful. But I got to tell you, in the middle of the, I mean, because they did the, all those videos and the testimonies and people coming in from around the country, former pastors, and a gal came up to me afterwards. She goes, wow, pastor, most people have to die to get what you just got. <laughs> she was right. And I, I, I don't remember what I said. I think it was something like, I'm glad I didn't, or something like that. But eventually we all die, right? And all of us, all of us are gonna, all of us have to come to the way in. All of us are gonna stand before the living God. If you're not a Christian, that will be an awful thing because it's an awful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If you are a Christian, you're gonna have to stand on the divine scale, in the divine gymnasium, so to speak. In fact, let me tell you something. As we make our way to the Lord's table, this isn't a gymnasium, but in another sense it is. This is a time where, where we are going to be exercising ourselves before God, are we not? Isn't that what this is? In a sense, we, 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 go to a, we go to a divine weigh-in every time we come to the Lord's table. And I tell you that because this place, it's, it's not like this is an altar. But it is a place where we meet Jesus. It's not like it's an idol. But it's a place to get rid of him. Isn't it? And it's also a place where we remember those of us who really know the Lord... Not who we are, but what? Whose we are. And we bring with that all of our realities, all of the realities, the things that are timely or untimely, the things that are joyous and burdensome, and we give them to him, and we go to the gym, so to speak, and we wrestle before God. And some of us have to wrestle with God now. That's what this time is for. Remember those old 
in-your-face Christian t-shirts that used to be out there. I hated those things. The one I hated the most was the one that said, the Lord's gym. You remember that one? Has Jesus, you know, all ripped out doing a push-up with a cross on his back with the, with the in-your-face uh, bench press this. How sacrilegious can you get? And yet, the Lord's table is the Lord's gym. It's the time for us to meet with Jesus. Remember his perfect life and sacrificial death as depicted in the elements here. Symbolically, but powerfully, right? We examine ourselves. That can be a workout, huh? Confessing any known sin. And ask yourself as we focus around the Lord's table, have I established an altar in my own life where I meet with God regularly? Am I burying the, burying the idols? Am I recognizing who, whose I am? Or am I making it all about me? Because it ain't all about you, right? And am I willing to accept the realities of life? That's just life, right? Amen? With that in mind, let's talk to God as we prepare for the Lord's table. God, thank you so much for this time that we can be together to finish this study of Genesis and the lives of our, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To be reminded this morning, Lord, that no matter how disastrous a situation looks like, the first thing we need to build is an altar. Oh God, help us to do that. To get our hearts and minds above the fray of whatever we're dealing with. Some of us are cherishing things we ought not to cherish. Help us to get rid of them. Find ourselves wrapped up in Jesus, whose we are, while we just live out life and all of its changes. Lord, some here need a name change, like Jacob. They need a name change. They need, if that's you, dear friend, you've never... You've never recognized yourself as a sinner that is separated from the living God. And you've never turned from your idols and placed your faith in Jesus who died and rose again for you. Would you do that right now? From your heart, place your faith in Jesus and be born again. And may the rest of us, Lord, be committed to carry on the faith of our fathers. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.